Hope, an analysis of a painting by G.F. Watts, by G.K. Chesterton. If the ordinary spectator at the art galleries finds himself, let us say, opposite a picture of a dancing flower-crowned figure in a rose-colored robe, he feels a definite curiosity to know the title, looks it up in the catalog, and finds that it is called, let us say, Hope. He is immediately satisfied, as would he, as he would have been if the title had run Portrait of a Lady, Warwick, or View of Kilchurn Castle. It represents a certain definite thing, the word hope. But what does the word hope represent? It represents only a broken, instantaneously glimpse of something that is immeasurably older and wilder than language, that is immeasurably older and wilder than man, a mystery to saints and a reality to wolves. To suppose that such a thing is dealt with by the word hope any more than America is represented by a distant view of Cape Horn would indeed be ridiculous. It is not merely true that the word itself is, like any other word, arbitrary. That it might as well be pig or parasol. But it is true that the philosophical meaning of the word in the conscious mind of man is merely a part of something immeasurably larger in the unconscious mind that the gutsy light of language only falls for a moment on a fragment, that obviously a semi-detached, unfinished fragment of a certain definite pattern on the dark tapestries of reality. It is vain, and worse than vain, to declaim against the allegoric, for the very word hope is an allegory, and the very word allegory is an allegory. Now, let us suppose that instead of coming before the hypothetical picture of hope in conventional flowers and conventional peak robes, the spectator came before another picture. Suppose that he found himself in the presence of a dim canvas with a bowed and stricken and secretive figure cowering over a broken lyre in the twilight. What would he think? His first thought, of course, would be that the picture was called Despair. His second, when he discovered his error in the catalog, that it had been entered under the wrong number. His third, that the painter was mad. But if we imagine that he overcame these preliminary feelings and that he, as he stared at that strange twilight picture, a dim and powerful sense of meaning began to grow upon him, what would he see? He would see something for which there is neither speech nor language, which has been too vast for any eye to see and too secret for any religion to utter, even as an esoteric doctrine. Standing before that picture, he finds himself in the presence of a great truth. He perceives that there is something in man which is always apparent on the eve of disappearing, but never disappears, an assurance which is always apparently saying farewell, and yet illimitably lingers. He may silence himself or become prime minister. It matters nothing. The man is over. And now for the second part, The Outraged and Insulted Optimist by G.K. Chesterton. The present importance of the book of Job cannot be expressed adequately even by saying that it is the most interesting of ancient books. We almost may say of the book of Job that it is the most interesting of modern books. In truth, of course, neither of the two phrases covers the matter, because fundamental human religion and fundamental human irreligion are both at once old and new. Philosophy is either eternal or it is not philosophy. The modern habit of saying, this is my opinion, but I may be wrong, is entirely irrational. If I say that it may be wrong, I say that it is not my opinion. The modern habit of saying, every man has a different philosophy, this is my philosophy, and it suits me, the habit of saying this is mere weak-mindedness. A cosmic philosophy is not constructed to fit a man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. 
A man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun and moon. The first of the intellectual beauties of the book of Job is that it is all concerned with this desire to know the actuality. The desire to know what is, and not merely what seems. If moderns were writing the book, we should probably find that Job and his comforters go on quite well together, by the simple operation of referring their differences to what is called the temperament, saying that the comforters were by nature optimists, and Job by nature a pessimist. And they would be quite comfortable, as people can often be for some time at least, by agreeing to say what is obviously untrue. For if the word pessimist means anything at all, then emphatically Job is not a pessimist. His case alone is sufficient to refute the modern absurdity of referring everything to physical temperament. Job does not in any sense look at life in a gloomy way. If wishing to be happy and being quite ready to be happy constitute an optimist, Job is an optimist. He is a perplexed optimist. He is an exasperated optimist. He is an outraged and insulted optimist. He wishes the universe to justify itself, not because he wishes it to be caught out, but because he really wishes it to be justified. He demands an explanation from God, but he does not do it all in the spirit in which Hampton might demand an explanation from Charles I. He does it in the spirit in which a wife might demand an explanation from her husband, whom she really respected. He remonstrates with his maker because he is proud of his maker. He even speaks of the Almighty as his enemy, but he never doubts at the back of his mind that his enemy has some kind of a case which he does not understand. In a fine and famous blasphemy, he says, Oh, that mine adversary had written a book. It never really occurs to him that it could possibly be a bad book. It is anxious to be convinced, that is, he thinks that God could convince him. In short, we may say again that if the word optimist means anything, which I doubt, Job is an optimist. He shakes the pillars of the world and strikes insanely at the heavens. He lashes the stars, but it is not to silence them, it is to make them speak. In the same way we may speak of the official optimists, the comforters of Job. Again, if the word pessimist means anything, which I doubt, the comforters of Job may be called pessimists rather than optimists. All that they really believe is not that God is good, but that God is so strong that it is much more judicious to call him good. It would be the exaggeration of censure to call them evolutionists, but they have something of the vital error of the evolutionary optimist. They will keep on saying that everything in the universe fits into everything else, as if there were anything comforting about a number of nasty things all fitting into each other. We shall see later how God, in the great climax of the poem, turns this particular argument altogether upside down. When at the end of the poem, God enters, somewhat abruptly, is struck the sudden and splendid note which makes the thing as great as it is. All the human beings throughout the story, and Job especially, have been asking questions of God. A more trivial poet would have made God enter into some sense or other in order to answer the questions. But a, touchy, a touch truly to be called inspired when God enters, it is to ask a number of more questions on his own account. In this drama of skepticism, God himself takes up the role of skeptic. He does what all the great voices defending religion have always done. He does, for instance, what Socrates did. He turns rationalism against itself. He seems to say that if it comes to asking questions, he can ask some questions which will fling down and flatten out all the conceivable human questioners. The poet, by an exquisite intuition, has made God ironically accept a kind of controversial equality with his accusers. He is willing to regard it as if it were a fair intellectual duel. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer thou may. The everlasting adopts an enormous and sardonic humility. He is quite willing to be prosecuted. 
He only asks for the right which every prosecuted person possesses. He asks to be allowed to cross-examine the witness for the prosecution, and he carries yet further the correctness of the legal parallel. For the first question, essentially speaking, which he asks of Job is the question that any criminal accused by Job would be most entitled to ask. He asks Job who he is, and Job, being a man of candid intellect, takes a little time to consider and comes to the conclusion that he does not know.